when you're working in a small team, when you're in a niche sport and when you're in a small dojo, you start to get to know everybody you train with extremely well. So some people are able to just know what your weaknesses are and they'll always defeat you or you'll always walk away feeling defeated. The team building happens because of what we went through together. And then how it showed up was just how supportive everybody was and how appreciative everybody was of everybody else. We went to Worlds with the intention of winning Worlds. Is that a pipe dream? A lot of people would say so. But we went in with the intention of winning because if you don't go in believing you're going to win, then you're not going to win. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokushikai Inside Look podcast. Today we're speaking with Mary Fan from Toronto, Canada. Mary has been training for over 10 years, during which time she's represented Canada as part of the national team in both the 2015 and 2019 World Naginata Championships, culminating in a silver with the women's national team in Germany. Mary holds the rank of Sandan in Naginata and currently works as a lawyer in the provincial government. In this wide ranging conversation, Mary speaks about her experiences with Naginata and how it compares with other arts she's practiced. She talks about Budo being a place to get out of the daily grind and on the 2019 World Naginata Championships. My favorite part of this episode was about how Team Canada dealt with the stress of training and for competing at the World Championships in Germany, showing how even the most elite athletes will have their mental, physical, and psychological struggles. It also demonstrates how a team built over the years intentionally and through shared experience can create a force that is capable of overcoming those with more experience. So please enjoy this fun and engaging conversation with Mary Fan from Canada. My name is Mary.、Uh, I grew up in a small town called Ilderton, Ontario, which is most famous for being the home arena of the famous ice dancers Scott Moyer and Tessa Virtue. So everybody around me did skating. And of course, I know how to skate. I'm Canadian. Everyone in Canada knows how to skate. And、uh, I currently live in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm a Sandan in Naginata. Cool. So early on, you were doing skating. You're probably doing some other. I don't know. Well, I skated in the sense that every, every Canadian in rural Canada skates. This is just, it's kind of built a little bit into our culture. My community was a thousand people. Ilderton, Ontario is a thousand people. It's located about half an hour's drive outside of London, Ontario. And it didn't even have a Tim Hortons. It only got a streetlight four years ago. When I was growing up, it had a, a, an arena, and that was all we really had an、so、arena no, and a hockey team. <laughs> no Tim Hortons, but it did have martial arts? No martial arts, actually. I had to、okay. go into London for that.、Okay. So I started martial arts very early. I think that I must have seen a karate demonstration at the local mall when I was probably six or seven because I was really intrigued by it. And I definitely remember begging my parents to let me do martial arts. It took a while for them to get me into them because, I, again, they had to drive me in, in, and out of, in and out of London to do it. And of course, the kind of martial art I did was, you know, it's the kind of McDojo that you see. You often see, I think it's more common in karate than it is in any other discipline of martial arts. I think, I think a lot of people who are in karate know what I'm talking about. So my parents didn't know anything about karate. They just kind of signed me up for, for whatever was demonstrating at the mall. So I did that for about five or six years. How, how did you eventually find out that this was a McDojo? What, what were the traits of it? I have to remember that I started when I was nine or 10. So I think some of the, some of the ideology behind it, it, it was a very much a mix of multiple other disciplines. It was, a form of ken, it was a form of Kenpo, but not any form that would be recognized by anybody who, who really did martial arts. There, there was, I think, one thing, another thing that's very common about McDojos is that you have very fast progression. You go from white belt to brown belt or black belt in the span of like two years. 
mm-hmm. which is pretty short. For me to get my first dawn in Naginata was probably about three years. And then I've been practicing Naginata for, for 10 years now at this point. And I've just, I just got my, my third dawn uh, a year ago. So I think that one thing is pretty fast progression through the ranks. There was a difference between child belts and and adult belts. So, you know, there was child black child black belt, which was equivalent to an adult purple belt or something. I don't think these were I don't think these are things that most people who are outside the Budo community would recognize. They're the kind of things that I would recognize now if I was examining a like dojo. But I wouldn't have known it then. And I don't think any I don't think an adult who wasn't already immersed in the Budo community would be able to recognize a McDojo to see one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So h- how did you uh, progress from doing this style and, and practicing at this dojo to something else? So actually a funny story, that dojo actually completely collapsed. I'm not sure what happened because probably by the time it co- entirely collapsed, I was about 15 or 16. And I can't say that I paid attention to the politics of it. Either way, all the dojos for this are kind of shut down within the period of about a year and a half and nobody was doing it anymore. So I stopped, I stopped practicing mostly because the dojo shut down. And then I got back into martial arts when I went off to university, which was at Western, still in London. And I joined the, the club there, which was probably my first introduction to, to actual karate, which was a very, very different thing than, than the Kempo I'd been doing before. So the Kempo I'd been doing before had done, had been had included a lot of different aspects of many different martial arts. There was a grappling component, there was a kata component, there were there were weapons involved. It was a little, it was a hodgepodge of everything. And there was sparring. And then the karate that I was practicing, that I moved on to practicing, was very much more kata focused, which is actually which is more of what karate is, which I didn't know at the time. So I kind of moved on from there because it just wasn't really a good fit for me because I always was a little more interested in sparring and weaponry. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. So there's that difference when you first start a martial art as a kid. Yeah. Part of it is just your parents helping to choose it and you're just going with the flow. But now that you're going to university, you're, you're older and you can be more discerning about what you wanted to do. So yes. how did you make that decision? What, what were the things that influenced where you would go? Well, from there, I was, I didn't, I didn't, I knew I didn't appreciate this particular karate. And I was, maybe that one's not for me. I, I did always the weapons components. So after that, I moved on to, after that, it was a couple of years later, I moved on to kendo. I hesitated about kendo. Kendo has a bit of an insular community, I find. It, it can feel difficult for people on the outside to break in. Hmm. I, and I don't quite know how to describe it. You know, you walk into the, the club's fair and everybody in kendo, first, first, the kendo table has 10 people around it. <laughs> and then there's 10 people around it and they're all dressed in their kekogi and hakama and that would that part would be fine but they've also got a crowd of fanboys and fangirls around them and it feels really hard to try to break to the front to talk to anybody so it took a couple years for me to try kendo out just because i never it felt very uncomfortable for me to try to break through the ranks and talk to somebody um, because they were always crowded. It was always full of people. It's fencing. It's it's interesting when you walk into any sort of martial arts dojo or fencing. In this, I actually do think Western fencing has quite a lot in common with, with martial arts. And I, I also have fenced. I enjoy fencing very much. They always have opening groups of 40 or 50 people starting out at, at one time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think fencing opened at 50, 60 people. And all you do is footwork because fence, Western fencing is just Kendo. It's just any other martial art. It is all about the footwork. It's all about having really strong thighs that, that make you lunge farther. And you're not really playing with the, with the metal weapons anytime soon. 
but it's always 40 or 50 people. Kendo was exactly that at Western too. It's just, it was very difficult to get individual attention. And it took a, a couple years until I started. So I started Kendo finally when my fourth year of undergrad. I was one of the few people that stuck around. There was probably an opening class of 30 or 40 again. And then after a month, 25 of them are gone. And there's you with five other people. That's very interesting. That makes me think about, you know, how we say there's this huge attrition rate in in Kendo, Yado, any of these more traditional martial arts. And part of that is maybe because there's such a large group. And now that I think about it, why doesn't a... Actually, I want you to kind of maybe (laughs) think about and respond. Why, Why do you think that there is such a large beginner group when it comes to these arts compared to the more well-known ones, karate. I'm kind of giving away my <laughs> my opinion of it. But yeah, why, why do you think that there is this large, huge beginner group usually? First, what we do is cool. Let's just, let's just be real here. What we have is cool. There's swords. It's great. And I mean, I think one of the big, the big things here, I don't want to hesitate. I don't want to attribute this to anything in particular about Budo or Budo spirit or Zen or philosophy. This is straight up, this is, it's, it's a cool thing to do. And it's what, and what people end up doing is a little different than what they expect. Cause you see this exact same attrition in fencing too, just in Western style fencing. You start and any sport that involves a weapon, people seem to think that you walk in and the first thing you're going to do is learn how to hit somebody. No, the first thing you learn how to do in Naginata and Kendo and fencing is footwork. And then all you do is footwork for the next two months. And in fencing, it's because you you just won't have the leg strength to be able to move up and down the piste unless you you do your footwork. It's probably, yeah, four to six weeks of footwork. And then in kendo, again, it's footwork. It's just, it's not what people expect. People expect to walk in and start playing with a weapon right away. And you don't get to do that. So yeah, I, and I, another thing that we had fun talking about with our fencing coach, my husband and I, we both do Naginata and we both fenced for a little bit, was what we call the equipment quit. It's when you, <laughs> it's when people buy all the equipment they need. They buy their Bogu set, they buy their Shinai, they buy their Naginata, they buy their entire starter fencing kit with all the stuff. And then the next thing you know, they're gone. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's apparently extremely common. And it's, it's not just a Western Budo thing. It's it's an any sport that involves a weapon thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah well, I think the one thing that you mentioned was that people have have wrong expectations when they're coming into the class. So yeah. they think that they're going to do one thing, but they're actually, they're, it's more hard work than they think. And that, that's what I was wondering. Maybe, maybe it's because stuff karate is so much now in pop culture that people have a good idea what it means to do karate. And if people didn't so. have people didn't really know what kendo is, naginata is, they'll just make up their own view of it. So there's all these people coming in with very different views of what it is. And then when they realize, oh, it's just this one thing, then you get this huge drop off. I think there's also an impetus because we're smaller sports. So we're niche sports. And what that means is that when we finally do get the opportunity to do a demonstration, we show off the coolest things that we can do. Oh, so, yeah. you know, in Nugget, in Kendo, it takes about, I think at JCCC, it's probably about six months before you get into, get into Bogo. That's Japanese Canadian Cultural Center. At Western, when I was doing Kendo there, it was four months before they let us put on Bogo for the first time. And that's just because it's a semestered system. The first, you, you start in September and you do your footwork and you do your basic drills. And then in January, if you've done well, they'll get a club set of Bogo and help you put it on for the first time. In Naginata, that's even slower 
because we have so because a nugget nugget is very technical there's more footwork there's more there's more stances there's more ways that you can move your nugget and your body around the nugget so it's usually about a year in in nugget before people get into bogu but the first thing we show people one of the first things we show people if we ever get given the chance to do a demonstration is shiai because shiai looks cool it looks fun it looks energetic and it's dynamic and it's easy to show off but definitely people come, it, it gives people the impression that if they show up, they'll start doing that in a matter of months when really you don't start looking clean or cutting clean or, or being able to move in Bogu until a couple years later. Mm-hmm. So what was your first exposure to Naginata? So I, that's actually a funny story for me. I was always interested in Naginata as a sport. I didn't know much about it. Because, of course, it's so niche. So in Canada, there's really only three places where you can practice Naginata that are part of the Canadian, Canadian Naginata Federation. And that, that's Montreal, Toronto, and Edmonton. So growing up in London, Ontario, I didn't, really have, I didn't have access to Naginata. But I kind of had a vague sense of it because there was this foundational series of books that I read when I was a kid called The Protector of the Small Series uh, by Tamora Pierce, in which the main character used a Naginata. And of course, when I later started doing Naginata, I found out that, you know, Tamora Pierce had done exactly no research. And what what Naginata was, was very different and quite, and surprisingly to me, quite a lot more beautiful and quite a lot more interesting than how she portrayed it, which is a bit of a surprise. And uh, so I was interested in it because I'd read this series of books. And then when I went to, when I went to Toronto for the University of Toronto Law School, I kind of had, a, had to make a choice between Kendo and Naginata. So actually for the first year, I actually didn't make that choice. I was, I'm going to do both because why not do both? I was already, I'd been in the beginners competitions for Kendo the year previous. And so Kendo had become something that was important to me. And then I, so I, so my first year at U of T, I was actually doing both. I was doing one practice a week at both. And I, I, at the end of that year, I ended up choosing Naginata mostly because I took, partly because I took a Kendo injury, partly also just because the Naginata, Naginata just fit with me slightly better. Though I, I enjoyed kendo quite a lot as well. And a big part of why I left kendo was definitely, I took a wrist injury that's just not recovering. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So you started when you were in undergrad and you continued doing different martial arts when you went to law school. How were you balancing your educational time, your class time, homework time, social life, budo? What, what was that? What was a typical week look for you during this time? So that very first year, it wasn't that bad because so... That very first year, I think I was doing one practice a week of, of each of Kendo and Naginata. I'd be off at practice for, you know, two or three hours, a couple of days of the week. And the rest was law school and social life and stuff like that. Later, as I moved on through law school and I dedicated myself more to Naginata, these things I found kind of worked together in a growth mindset kind of way. They all started working together. So going to practice for me became a break from, doing, from, from studying law. It became a break from my other friends. And a lot of my social life became involved in Naginata. So it was just a good escape, especially when things, the recruitment period for law school started happening. And being around other law students gets really stressful around that time. Because so when you go to U of T Law, U of T Law is, it's considered one of the best law schools in Canada, possibly one of the best law schools in the world. So there's this huge expectation that you're going to go and join one of the big law firms. In downtown Toronto or in New York City. Quite a lot of people I know joined major firms in, in New York City. And you live in this glass bubble because it is a small school. There's 600 people in law school at U of T. It's smaller class sizes at other places. And then it's just this 
you you know where people are going you're like, who got an intent to interview from miller thompson who got an intent to interview from blake's who got a job at davies and being around being in that atmosphere is a stress of its own so leaving that atmosphere and having whole separate social life and budo life became really beneficial for me in order to deal with the stress of being in law school and if, 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 it, if it says anything, I'm still friends with most of the people I met through Naginata, and I have maybe two or three friends from law school still. Well, so when you started involving yourself more in Naginata stuff, what, what were things that you were doing? You were helping out with things or organizing or participating in more events? Mostly I was participating. So I went to more practice. I started competing in second year of law school. So that was probably my first, that was both my first national tournament and my first international tournament in my second year of law school. So I trained a whole, I trained a lot more. And then is, I think you see this in every small club. Naginata was quite small. Any senior student could be asked to help out with teaching. And that's just a part of the culture. And it's also part of just being in a very small sport. The U of T club didn't have a formal sensei. It still doesn't. It's really, we're really all senior students. It's better now than it was then. Back when I was starting, the person who was leading the Toronto, Toronto dojo only had a shodan. And then the, the, my second year, the person who was leading also only had a shodan. And now they have a few sundan around, not my, myself, but some of the people who started around the same years I did are often around. So they have a little bit more strength there now. But back, especially back then, there some of the highest ranked people in in Canada only had a need on at that point. So it was kind of if you'd been doing it for more than a year, you could be asked to step in and help out with the beginners. Hmm. Within that second year, you were already participating in national and international tournaments. Yeah, what I didn't was- do very well. <laughs> I didn't do very well. Let's make that clear. I did not do very well. <laughs> What did you see? Initially, you're just in a university club. It's just a small group of people. And then suddenly there's national, so other provinces, other clubs, and then international, other countries. What was kind of your first impression of the Naginata community? Uh, I would say that at the time, the Naginata community was still very small. We're talking 2011, 2012. At that time, there were really only three clubs, three clubs that were actively participating in nationals. So there was the two clubs in Toronto, and then there was one club in Montreal. So going to nationals didn't feel a high pressure event. It was, I was meeting people, different people, older people who were doing Naganata. I was impressed by how well they moved and so on, but it didn't feel really big. It was still a small community then. We've got, we've got more dojo. We've got two more dojos now. We've got Edmonton and we've got McGill. But at the time it was very, very small. Did I, I no, I didn't win anything, but I also felt very much of a, very much a community. And that was something I really appreciated when I was at nationals that year. Mm-hmm. Later, when we when I went later when I went to the first New York tournament, it was a very different seeing. It was a very different level of play at the time. And I mean, I, I think they still do have more higher ranked players than we do. But at the time, it was probably my first time seeing multiple Sandan in a room and watching multiple Sandan play. That was and so that was very eye opening. Watching the way other people moved and they moved a lot. They moved a lot better than I did. They moved a lot faster than I did. And I mean, over time, I trained very. I trained hard. So we all trained hard. I moved a lot closer to how they move now. Um, are, are the brackets yeah. the same ranks, or does everyone just fight everyone? Usually, I think this is probably the same across most martial arts. There's usually a dangai division for people who do not have don who do not have don rank yet, and then there's a yudansha division for people who have don rank and up. Okay, so even if you have Shodan, you could be competing with someone with Yondan or Godan. Yes. Wow. Yes, absolutely. Cool. Um, so the other thing that we start noticing when we 
participate in broader community events is the differences between dojos, some styles, some groups focus on one thing or another. What did you notice when you started participating in these? I mean, I don't think I would have, I would say that I noticed much of anything early on when I was, uh, when I was, when I started, because I think, I think that being able to recognize those kinds of differences takes a little bit of, it takes a little bit of training in and of itself. It, it when, when you don't know, everything looks great to you, right? Later on, I would say that I, I noticed that certain dojos are stronger in Engi than they are in Shiai. And some dojos have very strong Shiai teams. And I, for, I think for Naginata, the big distinction is the focus on Engi versus the focus on Shiai. I don't think that's an intentional divide because Naginata, in Naginata, the, the, the theory is that both of them are critical. Both of them are very, very important, but everybody has a preference. So, yeah. So you would initially see that because there's two parts of the tournament. There's the, the Kata part and the Shiai part. And then, and, and then because it's the same people competing, then one, one would like do amazing in one, but poorly in the other one. Not so much in not so much in North America. Here it's I think here we have a shallow enough pool that people who are good are just good. They if you end up if you end up training if you end up going in with if you end up going if you have 10 years of experience and you end up going into both competitions, you'll do well in both competitions just because there's not a lot of people who've been training as long as you have. However, I know in Japan, people do start focusing relatively early. They can do both, but teen, as early as high school high schoolers will say if they're in a big enough Naganata team they'll start dividing themselves up and say I'm more of an Angi player I'm more of a Shi'ai player I focus on this I can do the other and I, and I mean let's be real here the Japanese Shi'ai team still beat us at Angi but the, when, I think when you have a deep enough pool those those differences start having a bigger difference on who wins tournaments and who, who does well at tournaments. Mm-hmm. And how has your appreciation or thinking or preference of each of these evolved over time. Did you have, did you prefer more of the fighting in the earlier points or did you prefer the kata? And then how did it change? I certainly preferred the Engi. I was the, I was the person they couldn't get into Bogu for three years. <laughs> so I, I, I didn't, the way Bogu made, made, made me feel part of that was because I never really figured out how to tie my men properly. And now, and after I, t- I figured out how to tie my men properly and how to get my hair out of the way and all of that, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. But early, so early on, I was very much, I preferred Engi. I did not really doing Bogu drills. I didn't really, did not really doing, doing Shiai at all. And then I think, I, I don't know if that changed. I think it's changed somewhat now because I, because now I, I struggle, now I struggle with, with the intense focus I need for Engi. <laughs> but, and, and Shiai comes easier to me now, but, and that may be because I happen to be part of a, a team that's pretty strong in Shiai. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there, we're, we, we also do Aggie often and frequently, but I, I would say that the Toronto teams are probably quite strong in Shi'ai. Mm-hmm. Talking about tournaments and, and these teams, how do you prepare for a Naginata tournament? How do, where do you spend a lot of focus? How do you distribute the time between practicing something, thinking about strategy, discussing how to be a team rather than just as an individual? It depends on what kind of tournament we're talking about, right? If we're talking about our usual circuit tournaments, we actually don't put that much preparation into it. I mean, we do in the sense that we train, but for the most part, it's just regular training, except for once we figure out what, what Engi they're, what Engi they are going to be, they're going to be up for competition. We tend to focus a little bit more on those Engi in class. But it's actually not a lot of training or focus for a typical tournament. And that's just because we know they, they happen every year. We don't even go out of our way to train for nationals. It's a very different picture when we start, to- when we start talking about worlds. Because when, it, when we start getting into worlds, 
we started having an actual selection process, a, a competitive selection process with multiple training camps, multiple essays that we need to write, video review analyses that had to be handed in, personal training goals that had to be set and met, and then competition records. Things become very different when we start talking about worlds as opposed to the usual circuit that the Toronto team is used to dealing with. Our usual circuit in Toronto would include Montreal, Montreal in, for Canadian nationals. That, that's started moving around recently, but it would include Canadian nationals in about October. There's a major New York Taikai in about late late March, early April. There's a winter classic now now in Montreal over February or March or so. So that would be our, our usual competition circuit is not extremely packed. I think there's there's a tournament in, in Edmonton if you can fly over in April. And then there's something in Washington, DC in about early October if you can if you can fly down. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, for most students, it's the driving distance ones that we, we care about. And that's that's the Canadian National Tournament usually and in New York. Mm-hmm. And then prepping for the Worlds, you mentioned that the, there's this very rigorous selection process, but that wasn't always the case. Can you talk that's about true. your first nat- international tournament at the Worlds and then the more recent one and compare and contrast those two? Sure, for sure. So my first my first world experience was in 2015. That was our sixth world's competition, and that took place in, in Montreal. So that was very different. I, I I felt I found that the selection process that year was a little bit opaque. I'm not entirely sure how they selected the people they selected. I was selected for what we call the goodwill team, and that's for the so worlds is comprised of two separate tournaments. There's the world's competition the first day. And then there's a Goodwill tournament the second day, which I guess is meant to smooth over any hard feelings because the people who are not allowed to compete in Goodwill are the people who won anything at Worlds. So if you won anything at Worlds, you're automatically disqualified from Goodwill. Too bad. You could stand in the back and watch. <laughs> so the first year I was only competing in the Goodwill tournament and I did quite well there. You know how I, I feel anybody who's in Kendo or anyone who's in Nugget or anyone who's in Bogu uh, understands this feeling where you first get into Bogu and your entire body doesn't work. It's not doing the things that it's supposed to do. Um, it's not doing what you've trained it to do. Uh, and you just, you go in and you lose and you lose and you lose and you lose for the first two years. And then you finally win something and it feels very surprising. So that was the, that was the first worlds for me. And I think a big part of that was when you're working in a small team, when you're in a niche sport and when you're in a small dojo, you start to get to know everybody you train with extremely well. So some people are able to under, just know what your weaknesses are and they'll always defeat you or you'll always walk away feeling defeated because you're, you'll, because they know all your tricks. They know, all, they know how you work. They know how you think when you're in a match. And then all of a sudden I was up against people who didn't know how I thought and didn't know how I moved and I, I could actually win. So my first Goodwill, first Goodwill tournament, I made it fairly deep into the bracket. I think I made three matches in, which is, it was just pretty good. And it was kind of this feeling of, hey, I can do this. I, I know how to do this. I can do this. The second Worlds, it, the Worlds in 2019 in Germany, like, I think one of the big things to, to understand is that Naginata and Canada grew quite a lot between, between about 2015 and 2019. So all of a sudden, we had a much deeper pool of candidates to play with, I think. And that meant that starting in 2018, there was a formalized selection process. So our selection process included multiple components. There was a personal training component. So people were expected to develop a personal training plan and stick to it. That meant that quite a lot of people got people who could afford it got personal trainers. My husband got a personal trainer that year. A lot of people lost weight for the competition other people you know started running started working out regularly joined gyms all sorts of things 
that was a very personalized component. So you, you had to come up with a plan and hand it in, but you meeting that plan was entirely up to you. There was also, there were, there were reflection essays they needed to be handed in about things, the meaning of teamwork and so on. There were video review essays. So one thing that I think that Canada, Canada does that I don't, that I'm not sure other, other, how many other players do. I'm sure they do this in Japan is that they, is that we watch competition videos from other countries quite religiously. So we, we kind of examine how, how other players move and what we're likely to see. So there were video review essays on how, how people move and good comp and good matches and what good Naginata looks. So, and then we had to hand in reflection essays on those videos. There were monthly training seminars that took place around the country. We to try to even this, try to even the divide. Like the thing about Edmonton is that Edmonton is very, very far away from either Toronto or, or uh, Montreal. And so Canada is the second largest country in the world. Toronto and Montreal, I speak about, I speak about them. They're really close together. They're 600 kilometers apart. It is the size of the Mediterranean. You can go from France to Algeria and it's the same distance from Toronto to Montreal. So let's put that out there. Um, <laughs> so Edmonton is a four hour flight away and it's two time zones away. So it's very far. Driving would be 30 hours or something. I think, I don't know. I don't know anybody who's driven it. It's very far. So in order to try to even the, this, the differences between people who'd have to pay more to travel, we tried to move the, they tried to move the training seminars to the different cities. So that was probably the most exhausting part of, of the selection process. It was what the ones in Toronto were fine, but only one third of the training seminars were in Toronto. And the, and the other months I was either flying to, Alba, to Edmonton or I was driving six hours to, we were driving six hours to Montreal for a two-day training seminar and then we'd have to drive six hours back and I'd have to show up to work on the next day <laughs> or for Montreal or, or for Edmonton it was I'd have to get on a flight have to fly to Edmonton I'd have to adjust the Edmonton time for a weekend train for two days and then fly back so well, if you're going for the rough. weekend you're not even adjusting the design zone you're you get there training you you got adjusted by two days and then you're already coming back yeah yeah you never really get adjusted it was probably the most exhausting year of my life because I was managing a full-time job well every month going off to another city to train sometimes one third of the time I was in Toronto and that was fine <laughs> um, so I can imagine all this work it, it definitely uh, helps helps selection committees see who's dedicated who's committed yes. putting in all this effort but I can also see this huge knowledge base that's building up are you did you have at that time access to everyone else's reflection papers and yes. all that yeah. absolutely everything was put on a public forum wow so yeah you also got a chance to read everybody else's thoughts it was very good for developing teamwork because until you've gone through a process that is very difficult to describe it to anyone else. And there's this weird sense of camaraderie, but also competitiveness. On one hand, you know that you know that you succeeding means that somebody else doesn't get on the team. So you are competitive. You want to do better than other people. But on the other hand, they're also the only one who understands exactly how tired you are because they are exactly as tired as you are. So mm. it was just very... It was a, it's a very difficult experience to explain to anybody who doesn't do competitive sports because, yeah, this weird sense of I want to win, but at the same time, you're my friend and I will be upset if you don't win because I know what you have, I know what you've gone through to try to get here. So you, mm -hmm. you watch people, you know, lose 20, 30 pounds and or just have a bad competition day or, you know, just not not make it through through a particular a particular training seminar or tournament or it was just 
it was it's a very it's very interesting to live mm. through yeah so when when the team was finally selected what went through your head and what conversations did you have with your dojo mates or with your husband and in, in terms of the responsibility now it was it was a lot of pressure so I don't know how it, how it was for other countries, but certainly for certainly the Canadian team felt a responsibility to our teammates who didn't make the team to do well. You, I got on the team because somebody else didn't get on the team. That's just that's just how it is, unfortunately. And I was very honored to be picked for the team. I wasn't sure that I would be picked, and I think that that's the mark of a good selection selection process. You don't know who's going to be picked. There's no high flyers. Everybody's really good. And then, so I, when I was picked, it was, I, I think the selection committee looked at a lot of, of factors and qualities that a lot of people wouldn't think of. I know, I know that one of the reasons I was picked is because I do well under pressure. I tend to do better under pressure than I do otherwise. So I was put in Taisho position, mostly because they felt if I was in a position where they needed a win to, to carry it, to carry the three person match, then I would do it because I tend, I just tend to do well under pressure. Other people were selected for other reasons because, you know, technical ability is one is certainly very important, but a lot of mental qualities also were also canvassed and just a lot of, a lot of other factors were taken into account when they, when they started, not just who made the team and who didn't, but what role people played on the team. So some people who, for example, they were worried about wouldn't do well under pressure, got, got put, slotted into places where it was, for example, a simple position is slightly less of a pressure, pressure position than, than Taisho because in simple position, you know, Chuken, or Ta- Chuken and Taisho could still take home the match. But they need to have a lot of energy. So it was a lot of considerations that, that got slotted into putting people into, into different places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, so now you guys are carrying this this weight, this pressure, mm-hmm. because it's also the first time there was a selection. Previously, it was yeah. just kind of ad hoc. But now you know for sure, after everyone went through all this, all, this whole year of hell, <laughs> as yeah. you were putting it, not, what, what was the going to Germany? And what was, what was the environment? How did everyone feel entering the tournament? And then when it f- first started? Stressed. Honestly, just stressed. It was a... <laughs> We put a lot of the Canadian team certainly put a lot of pressure on ourselves to do to do very, very well. We went to worlds with the intention of winning worlds. Is that is that a pipe dream? A lot of people would say so. But we went in with the intention of winning because if you don't go in believing you're going to win, then you're not going to win. We we just we went in intending to take gold in everything. We didn't because you never take gold in everything. But that was the that was the attitude. There was also the added pressure of all the people that, that didn't make the team behind us. And I don't think that I've ever been in a more high pressure situation. I don't know if it was high pressure for, for other teams around the world, but I, we certainly saw our teammates reacting under the pressure a lot, a lot. There were people who were sick, who got sick, you know, puking under the pressure and just a lot of, uh, we saw a lot of um, stress coping mechanisms a lot of people needed alone time because they couldn't they couldn't handle being around other people because other people's stress would start riling them up. Weird fact, I totally had a I told my major stress reaction thing was I totally had a screaming breakdown because I'd forgotten my my sports bras in Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was so normally that's the kind of thing where I'm oh well that's that's crappy. I don't love this, but I will deal with it. No, this was screaming crying breakdown because I'd left my because I'd left my sports bras in Canada. Of course, I went and bought more before the competition, and it wasn't it wasn't an issue that I, that couldn't be fixed. But I was under a lot of stress, and it was just a lot of little things that 
Mm-hmm. Some people handled it other better than others. Others, you know, hold up alone outside, chain smoking. <laughs> so, <laughs> or not chain smoking, because we didn't smoke, but no one smoked on the team anymore because anybody who was smoking had as part of their personal training plan to quit. Wow, that's a great motivator for quitting smoking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was it was actually multiple people who had quit smoking on their personal training plan and they actually pulled it off. They all quit smoking, but you they definitely went outside and you kind of saw them wanting to smoke. <laughs> well, so speaking of all these uh, things that everyone was feeling the pressure, yeah. you guys did pr- relatively well. Can maybe yeah. walk, uh, walk us through the, the proceedings of the tournament. Who was your first opponent? How did that go? And then how did it change over time? So it was really interesting. We were in a particular, we had a particularly good bracket position. So our first, we were first up against Taiwan and we defeated Taiwan three matches, nothing, two points each. <laughs> so that was, that was a good start to the day. It was a very good boost to our confidence. And then we moved on to, we moved on to, it was, it was France that was next. I would say that one of the things that was really different about, about training, about competing in Germany, as opposed to in Canada, is that in Canada, everything is, temperatures are regulated pretty much wherever you go. So, and we're Canadian, so we have ice in our veins. We were, we would have been more prepared to fight in 15 degree weather, 15 degrees Celsius inside weather, than we were in the 30 degree weather that we were in, in, in Germany. So in Germany, there's climate control is, is much rarer. It's much harder to find a space that's air conditioned. The tournament space was not air conditioned and it was a very hot day. So we were used to training at about 20 degrees Celsius, 21, 22 max. And if you were out, if you were tra- doing your training camp out in Edmonton, it could be as low, it could be much lower than that. And then all of a sudden we're fighting in 30 degree heat. It was, it was, that part was pretty tough, but I definitely think that our first match against, against Taiwan, because we carried it off so well, it was a big, it was a big confidence booster going in against France and then against Belgium. So in France, we won the first two matches and I lost my match against somebody who'd apparently been training for 30 years. Not that I knew. I was very annoyed by that Um, because I didn't know that at the time. People told me afterwards that I did fantastic, but I didn't know that. So I just felt disappointed that I, that I lost. And then I lost again. I lost against, I personally lost against Belgium, but again, with my teammates, Maria and Luton carried off the matches against Belgium. So we took that match as well. And then for Belgium, I pushed my opponent into, into overtime Encho and lost to referee's decision, which is a pretty good ending because I'm pretty sure that Charlotte's been training at least 10 years longer than I have. <laughs> and, then, and then after that, it was just Japan. And then I think we did very well against Japan. Yes, Japan defeated us three matches, nothing. But both of my teammates, Maria and Luton, managed to push, push the Japanese into, into Encho. Which is, which I think is a pretty big deal. And I mean, I lost two points, nothing, but it is what it is. And so we took silver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So one of the things that you mentioned during the selection process was also the preparation you guys did, including watching videos and coming yep. up with strategies. How did that help in the tournament? I think a lot of it came down to confidence. We felt we knew these players. And I mean, is that, is that right or is that wrong? It de- I don't know. It depends on how old the videos are, really, because people, the way people move, the way people, if you found a video from me from 2012, it would give you a completely wrong view of the way I move in, in GI. If you found a vid- video of how I moved even in 2017, it would probably still give you a, an incorrect view of how I move and how I, and how I deal with a, with a GI nowadays. It just depends on how quickly people progress. 
But on the other hand, when you find videos of 2018, 2019, you do actually have a very good idea of what people to do and, and what people's strengths are when you when you watch them. But a large part of it, I think, really is just confidence. You've seen they don't feel strangers to you when you walk into the match with them. You you've never met them before, but they don't feel strangers. And then they get into they get into shoot on with you, and they still don't feel a stranger. They still feel somebody you've examined and that you've watched. So you've never met them, but they don't feel different to you than what you're used to doing already in practice. And I think that's the big advantage of doing so much video review mm-hmm. is it's more of a mental, a mental game. I'm not go- walking in going, I don't, I don't know how this person moves. I don't, I don't know anything. You're walking in feeling, you know, it, and because you feel, you know, it, you react better. It's just because you feel, you know, it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other aspect of the preparation was team building. How did you yes. see that kind of show up in Germany? I would say the team building happens just because like of what we went through together and then how it, how it showed up was just how supportive everybody was and how appreciative everybody was of everybody else. The, the women's team took, took silver and I, and I know, I know our men's goodwill team also did very, very well. Four of our five competitors in in our goodwill tournament made the quarterfinal. All of them then got eliminated at the quarterfinal, (laughs) but they all made the quarterfinal, (laughs) but yeah, everybody was just very supportive and we definitely got things done. Like we also didn't stay with any of the other teams in the hostel that the other teams were staying in. We, we rented our own house. So getting things done around the house was also helpful there. It's just, yeah, we had a strong familiarity with each other. We all knew each other very well. Mm. And that I think really helped. Yeah. And what amazing showing in terms of what you just mentioned, the, the goodwill and then the women's team getting silver. How are you guys now looking forward to the next one? So the next tournament is in 2023, and I don't think we know where it is going to be yet. I think I've heard rumors that it would be in the States. And I think a lot of it really depends on what the next couple, next few years looks. I think the problem with the COVID-19 pandemic is that it's really inhibited a lot of people's practice. I mean, my dojo is effectively shut down, not permanently, we hope, but they're not having indoor practice all winter. So, I mean, they're not even having outdoor practice because it, it, it gets icy and now they're worried about liability, which as a lawyer, I, I should say they should be worried about liability. And if I was their lawyer, I would certainly say don't have outdoor practice, but it's definitely going to depend on what the next few years looks. And I don't think anybody's really made firm plans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So tournament is one thing, but just thinking about how do you sustain a dojo? How do you yep. grow? How do you get beginners? And there was a huge, you said between 2015 and 2019, Canada grew a lot. And it's still a relatively young community in Canada compared to, especially in Europe, France and Belgium, you're saying they've been around for 20, 30 years. They've been around for a long time. Yeah. yeah. I think that one of the big, big differences between Canada and a lot of other countries is that our big recruitment dojos are at two of the biggest universities in Canada. They're at U- University of Toronto and McGill. So I think that I think that probably this year has made a big impact on our recruitment just because our dojos are the other dojos aren't really running. Our big recruitment dojos are not able to run the way they normally would either. So they're sustaining a population, they're sustaining interest, but they're not getting new interest. They're not getting new people involved really, and that's going to have a big impact when we go into when we go into 2023. Yeah, because you can imagine that if the universities were your main draw Mm -hmm. for young blood, but all all of them are doing remote now, all the higher education. So like, yeah, it's a, it's a big problem for us. And I I don't quite know how, I think it's, we're kind of waiting to see where things happen. We could very well recover in the next like couple years, we could very well end up in a position where we've sustained our entire population during this time. And we're going to recruit more and it's going to be a little bit more of the old guard going into 
or the training the people from 2019 going into 2023 so the thing about having such a big selection committee in 2023 was that a big selection process was that we had a lot of people who actually were in the 2019 training process not necessarily because they expected to make the 2019 team but because they were hoping to improve their skills well enough so that they could make the 2023 team so i do think that if we keep all those people we will be in a strong position for 2023 but it really, we really have to see how this pandemic shakes everything out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I, it, it's really more for later than I'm concerned because it does take years for somebody to get really good in Nanginata and the lack of young blood from this year won't really be felt until many years down the line. Mm-hmm. Just like you were saying in 2015, if, or if someone took a video of you in 2015 or 2012, yeah, 2012, yeah. 2012 to now, that's a huge change. Yeah. yeah. So I want to get into just a few rapid fire questions. Are you a dog person or a cat person? And cat why? person. Cat person. I have a cat. Dogs require too much attention. Okay. Yeah. What would you consider your comfort food? Poutine. It's very Canadian, but I love poutine. There's nothing better than fries smothered in gravy and whatever other ingredients you can come up with. I especially that in Toronto, this can involve a lot of international ingredients. Beef shawarma, because a beef shawarma poutine is fantastic with garlic sauce. Like, oh, it's yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, especially on a cold day, it's snowing outside and you just have someone warm. Yep. Wow. Is there, so we we talked about Nanginata Engi, the kata. Is there one particular one that is your favorite and why would that be? Uh, I really, number seven, because it's longer than the other ones and because I really like that Ebu Harai at the, that, that Harai, the, the Harai Otoshi at the end. It's very difficult to do, but I really like that one. Also, you start in Jodan, so... Could you just describe it in a little more detail for those that don't know Naginata? Mm-hmm. Sure. Number seven is, is the, the, it's honestly easier to show a video. <laughs> but the shikake side starts, goes, starts with a do and then two uh, free kaishi men. While the, well, the OG side starts in, starts in jodan, blocks the do, and then does two, two horizon two, and then ends up doing a harai otoshi. And yeah, I really just like the harai otoshi, which is very difficult. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a book, a movie, TV show, podcast, or something else that you watch and it's kind of, or read or listen to that's related to your practice? It, it doesn't have to inform it in making you better, but you just have feel there's this connection to Naginata. Um, I would say that if I was going to go for comfort television, I do watch a lot of police procedurals for some reason that I don't really understand why. I just never really got out of the mid-2000s CSI slash bones slash numbers type of phase and it doesn't really have anything to do with budo at all but yeah that's my that's my comfort watch well well speaking of that if someone were to open up your youtube account and see what youtube recommends to you based on what you've watched before what kind of videos would they see well they'd see a lot right now they'd see a lot of asmr videos with everybody working from home during the pandemic i found that i really having a pretend fireplace on my tv and so you get a lot of fireplace videos nice yeah Uh, okay so this is we covered so much today. Is there anything else that you want to say to the audience? Anything in closing, a message or something you're thinking about? Sure. I would say follow your passion. It's being part of a niche sport is really, really challenging for a lot of different reasons. No one understands what you do. Your parents don't understand that you've just gone to Worlds. You can't really talk about it to anybody. But if you're passionate about it, then follow it because that's still worth it. 
Great. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. For sure. Let me know if you need me to refer you to anybody else. I know Canada the best, but other than that, I don't know. <laughs> okay. So yeah, next time I need someone from Canada, I'll let you know. Sounds good. All right. Cool. Thank you so much. No problem. Great, See you later. Great. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode because we have a lot more exciting conversations to share as we explore the world of the traditional Japanese martial arts. The Inside Look podcast is available on most common podcasting platforms and on YouTube. Remember to subscribe to not miss out on new interviews as they are posted. We're always looking for feedback to improve, so please write us a review or drop us a line at podcast at tokushikai.ca or on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada. Until next time, thanks for listening.